We are back, and this is the second hour of Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. And in this hour, I'm super excited to be joined by the 22nd Poet Laureate of the United States, Pulitzer Prize-winning writer and professor of English and African-American studies at Harvard University, none other than Dr. Tracy K. Smith. And she's out with a new book called To Free the Captives, A Plea for the American Soul, Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Smith. I am such a big fan and such an admirer of your work. Oh, likewise. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just so honored. Well, I just first say congratulations on your memoir. And I have so many questions for you about this book because it's a memoir, but yet it's a book about racial tension, racial violence, racism, systemic racism. Those things that we have been talking about for the last, I mean, we've been talking about them for decades, but they've been really in the news after the murder of George Floyd. So I just want to start by asking you, what what was the catalyst for you to write To Free the Captives? Well, yeah, I mean, you you kind of take it right back to where this book became urgent for me. Um, it was 2020. Like so many of us, I was living with a sense of grief. Uh, rage and fear. Um, I have young kids and I was just thinking, gosh, how is it that we're, we're back where it seems like we started in so many ways? And I wanted to find a way through language to move from those those feelings that are sort of paralyzing into something that might be productive, clarifying, and maybe even... Um, healing in some way. Uh, And one thing that helped me do that was to say, okay, I descend from people who experienced versions of what we are watching and witnessing and experiencing ourselves. And they prevailed, they survived, they thrived, they founded, you know, some official institutions and other unofficial institutions that helped one another be and become. And so listening and looking backward toward them helped ground me a little bit. And it helped me to begin to think about not just the history that we descend from, but the imagination, the collective imagination that we share in this country, because I think a lot begins in that site. You know, when we have these conversations about race, sometimes they are so painful. They can be contentious. Sometimes, you know, people get downright belligerent. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we've all been watching what's playing out in the news every day between uh, Israel and Hamas. And I saw an article where a black woman, friend, a white woman who's Jewish, and they tried to talk through the issues that are front and center, you know, involving Israel and Palestine, the Palestinian people in Gaza Strip, and they didn't get very far. And the black woman talked about, however, whenever she tries to have conversations about race, how they always end in this kind of impasse. So with that as a backdrop, what has been the response to your book? Because sometimes people don't want to confront or face the reality of racism in this country. Yeah, it's a hard topic. And, uh, you know, there's a feeling of fear of doing or saying something 
wrong feeling of anxiety about being perhaps implicated in racism, even if you know you you might believe yourself to be somebody who's who's against um, against discrimination, against bigotry. Um, and so, beginning with fear is a hard place. <laughs> it's hard to listen when you're afraid. It's hard to find the right words into difficulty when you're tense. Um, one of the things that I am hearing, I guess, is a kind of gratitude or at least interest in some of the different registers that this book is trying to explore. So yes, history is a part of it. And there are places where I'm, I'm thinking in very direct language about our failures as a nation. Um, but I'm also thinking about family. I'm, I'm thinking about the forms of love and care and the spirit practices that also maybe help eradicate some of the, the paralyzing fear um, that we bring with us into our most fraught topics. Um, and so that that's something. But what I really hope might be possible is that we can find our way into some of those hard conversations and also let go of a little bit of the stronghold that many of us have on memory. <laughs> and this is what I mean. Um, several years ago, when I was in the laureateship, I visited a small town in Kentucky, uh, mostly white town. And I read a number of poems that derive from letters that Black soldiers wrote to their family members and to the government during the Civil War. And it's a poem that's made up of all these archival voices, and they're very moving. They aren't tampered with by me. It's kind of just a, a curating of these voices that haven't necessarily made it onto our collective radar. Um, so I read the poem, and after the reading, a woman came up to me who said, these letters and the point in history they take me back to really remind me of my own family and my grandmother who lived to be almost 100 years old. If you won't mind waiting, I want to rush home and bring something something for you so that you can get a sense of who she was. So she, she was gone for a very long time. And finally, she returned and she had a different bearing about her. She seemed worried. She seemed almost apologetic. And I said, what happened? And she looked at me and she said, um, listen, my grandmother would never want to hurt you, but some of these songs and stories that she's reciting on this, this recording, um, and I just kind of knew exactly where she was going with that. I was thinking, okay, these old Kentucky songs that this woman had received from her parents and grandparents, and these are texts that are going to frame Black life in a way that's gonna be hurtful. Um, there was a part of me that was really disappointed, but another part of me said, no, this woman came back and this woman in the time it took for her to go home, maybe listen to these recordings again and return here, she realized something. She realized perhaps that the memories that she cleaves to might need to be modified a little bit. And, and that made me feel like maybe with courage or with with a kind of tenderness uh, toward others who are different from us, we can learn to let go of some of these pillars of memory and history, the very things that make it really hard sometimes for us to get into new territory or, or a new vocabulary for what we could do to live more um, productively with one another. So I'm really hopeful that we can be resourceful and that maybe the poetry that 
makes up part of this book or the, you know, the, the thinking through different contexts can be one road toward a different kind of uh, willingness. Wow, just just so profound. And it's, it's Avi Bernard back with you, uh, Dr. Smith. Uh, Ariba and I are gonna have to tag team this interview as as her um, internet is is going in and out. But just what are what's some of the the feedback that you're getting from your colleagues? Because I know that uh, that this is this is work that is important to a lot of people. So uh, so what are you hearing from some of your colleagues? Mm-hmm. Well, the book just came out on Tuesday, so it's it's fresh feedback. But one mm-hmm. one topic that we've been talking about and that's come up at some of the events is the emphasis in the book on the soul, the human soul, as a tool for thinking through our you know political or our civic lives. And um, it's not necessarily a a term that we turn to very much in the academy, but it's something that I'm trying to invite us to think about. Um, In my upbringing as someone who descends from Black Southerners, my parents grew up during Jim Crow in Alabama, the vocabulary of belief was central to the sense of um, capacity, patience, diligence and courage. Um, and, and another thing too, which I would say is like belief in self, conviction that that their lives matter and that there's something that they've been endowed with that is inviolable, no matter what the nation or even distant neighbors uh, would say to, to, um, to count, contradict that. And so I'm thinking, okay, if we're willing to imagine that we're large eternal beings, um, maybe that allows us to think in two ways that are a little bit different. One is that the project of evolution and liberation that we're involved in is something that will span not only generations, but lifetimes. And maybe this is work that that we can commit to over the long haul. Um, I kind of believe that the ancestors that I turn to in terms of the research, but also some of the meditation that helped me to keep going in 2020 and that informed some of the trains of thought in this book, I believe they're allies in this work, even now in, you know, out of bodily form. But the other thing that interests me about the soul is that it changes the terms of accountability or the scope of accountability that we live with. Um, we're used to thinking, okay, what you do in your life, uh, what you, some people will think what you can get away with in your life is kind of the bottom line, but what, what might change in our sense of our responsibility if um, we can imagine a sense of accountability that expen- extends even beyond, beyond the terms of an individual life. Um, so these are, these are different, different, it's a different vocabulary um, that I'm I'm hoping we might be receptive to. Another term that feels like it might be useful to our sense of um, of our our neighbors in this nation is um, love, uh, which isn't really necessarily something that we bring into our political discourse. But I wonder um, if we could activate a sense of of how that too might be not only useful but necessary to unraveling this this dense knot of um, resistance, of division, uh, and again, of fear that we live with in this country. Yeah, no, uh, you, you said so much there. I, I mean, one politician who I can think of who does try to lead with love is, is Cory Booker. And when he ran for president, there seemed to be mm-hmm. zero appetite for, for that kind of thing, which I think speaks to 
the the environment that the country is in, especially when you when you zoom out even further and, and remember that Donald Trump was actually president and he has a, a, a decent chance, if not a good chance, to be that again when he uh, stands for and espouses nothing but hate. But you said something that I wanted to ask you about. You said thinking in terms, uh, in greater terms than an individual life. And when, when you have this connection to your ancestors and yet, as you said, it's so important uh, that belief in self is so important. And how do you, how do you think of this whole reparations conversation? Because belief in self is important, but some, uh, some who believe that, uh, that black people are not entitled to reparations might say, yeah, your belief in self is all you need. And you, you all you need to do is pull yourself <laughs> up by your bootstraps when you cannot ignore the history uh, of this this country and our our individual um, ancestries and how our ancestors' paths have shaped our path, and so how do you uh, how do you look at this whole uh, conversation on reparations in light of uh, your research? Well, I think that um, in order to be honest about what's possible in this country, we do have to recognize the effects of our nation's long-standing, rigid, and, and racially informed hierarchies. Um, those are, you know, forms of worth and um, that that have determined nearly everything in this country. Who, who has the rights to citizenship? Who has, you know, access to the ballot? Whose needs, wishes, and, um, and um, demands are going to take priority and so I feel like um, taking a, a look at what freedom is is rooted in in this country is essential. And in my perspective, it points to the notion that not we, we can't just start from where we are now. We have to go back and 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 correct um, the inequities and the unjust ranking that we've been subject to for centuries. Um, and I think a vocabulary of reparations is something that can really help that. Um, one of the things that that was surprising but important for me to write my way into was a sense of what freedom, uh, what we take freedom to be. And one of the things that I realized is in this country, we think of we're, we've been trained to think of some people as free, as innately free. Um, and they are the ones who appear to descend from histories of power, of ownership, and frankly, of dominion over other people. And the myth or the misconception about this is that it's something that has to do with their worth. Uh, it's something that's inseparable from their, their very persons when it's been won or stolen or claimed through campaigns of violence and enslavement and uh, colonization. But the flip side of that coin is that others of us are are not necessarily free, but rather freed. Um, and and that's because we are seen to descend from histories of violence. We are seen to um, have been primarily acted upon by the people whose freedom has gone uncontested. And so that's not really a fair or level playing field. Um, and in my mind, that's another reason why the conversation around reparations um, needs to be entered into in earnest and with a sense of willingness to change our sense of, of um, what the freedom we've long kind of insisted exists um, 
to think about how far that actually has gone. Yeah, yeah, really well said. Uh, when we come forward, I want to I wanna ask you about your personal feelings uh, regarding looking into your family's history. I know that there's a lot of interest in, in, uh, in a lot of us in our ancestry and looking back and, you know, there's, there's all these ancestry.coms and, and, and all these things and 23andMe and just these things, casual things that we can do, but you, you went so deep and I want to get your, uh, your perspective on what it was like for you. Was it painful? Uh, was it, what was it? I want to know what was, what, what you felt as you were digging through all this mm -hmm. uh, personal family history for you. Uh, and we'll do that right after this news traffic and sports update on KBLA talk 1580. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA talk 1580. And we're back on Ariva Martin in real time. Avi Bernard stepping in for Ariva today. And I am so grateful to be joined by Dr. Tracy K. Smith, author of to free the captives, a plea for the American soul and also poet laureate 22nd poet laureate of the United States. Uh, Dr. Smith, so, so grateful to have you here. Before the break, I was asking you about what the experience was like for you in, in digging so deeply into your family's past. I mean, it's, we all know that as, as black Americans, our, our ancestors lives were, were probably very painful and, um, and it's sad to even think about things like that sometimes, but when you dig back the way you did and, and see all, all the specifics of, of so many of your ancestors, uh, just what are, what are some of the, the emotions you went through? Well, I relate to that feeling of, of, uh, you know, like the, the worry, uh, of, of the burden of history and the pain that we know is there. Uh, when I was younger, I often found myself shying away from conversations with my parents and and their their siblings about the past because I was afraid we would get to a place where I would learn that they'd suffered and I didn't want to know that I didn't want I didn't want to feel or hear um, hear that and I realized that was a tremendous loss that um, that resulted from just wanting to shy away from from the the weight of history. Um, so I wanted to turn toward the archive as I could and um, glean as much as I could. And yes, there's evidence of, you know, challenges and difficulty and injustice. But there's also a beautiful story of community, of, of love, and of what I think of as a, as a really resourceful improvisation by which family members and kin created the network and and the the sense of support and possibility that many of America's institutions failed to 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 create for them or sustain for them. And so there was a real feeling of joy that I found in in looking through census records and seeing how families move perhaps moved but sometimes moved in uh into communities where other kin were living and formed as I can imagine a, a network of support. Um, there's a moment in the depression where uh, somebody who was close with my uh, my grandmother's side of the family um, wrote a letter to the governor of Alabama saying, all the black folks in my community have been laid off 
and we haven't been given an explanation and food prices are going higher and we we need your help. Could you please offer some help? And he got a letter back from the governor's representative, which essentially didn't offer any help. It was kind of like a little bit of a vague bureaucratic language that just sort of pushed the buck a little bit. But in the next census that I found, that that person and his wife had moved into um, the household of their daughter and her husband and their children. Um, and he had gone from, you know, having a farm to working in a nursery in a, in a city. And I realized, you know, those are those are choices that um, were necessary because there wasn't, you know, support coming from from the state or from other institutions, but family is an institution. And the love and care that family is is made up of is also a kind of support. And and, um, that heartened me to realize that there's a patchwork of kin and care that runs through the archive. And we just have to be willing to listen for it and to read it almost between the lines. Um, but it was also really wonderful to find evidence of people's lives. I found, you know, draft cards of my grandfather and great uncle as they served in World War I. Um, I didn't know very much about their experience and there aren't letters that I could could find, but there are archival materials of some other Black servicemen from that same time period. And I feel like their experience told me a little bit about what, you know, my own family members must have experienced. And it made me feel like um, the family I belong to extends beyond bloodlines. And it has to do with people in a place and a time who were experiencing similar circumstances, similar pressures, and who, who managed in similar ways, you know, by making do, by um, reaching out, by strengthening bonds within and across uh, family and and community. I think that's a, one of the hallmarks of Black life in this country that um, we we know how to love and we know how to lend a hand. We also know how to forgive and um, I think those are those are some of the forms of grace that have sustained us. There are some of the capacities that give me a real sense of confidence that even with the outrage that we live with in so many contexts, even with the sense that not everybody is uh, willing to enter into conversations that might lead us to change the ways that we live with one another and change our understanding of the complexity of race and racism in this country, um, I feel hopeful that there that there is a sense of of faith in what can be built, um, and much of what was built continues to endure. I think that you know I and and maybe you would feel this way too. Were evidence of that. Families made sacrifices and choices so that subsequent generations could go a little bit farther. Um, so rather than feeling um, saddled with sorrow, um, I feel a sense of, um, gratitude. That's just, that's just really beautifully put. I mean, how you said that you found evidence of their existence. I, I really love that. And I think it is worth it to, to look into our ancestry, just to have that, even if you are going to encounter some, some pain and, 
some some uncomfortable feelings. I do think it's worth it. And you know, as as you were talking and speaking about finding evidence of your of your ancestors uh, having existed, uh, you know, my wife is really into uh, her ancestors, and she you know she has an altar and she you know brings them food and and so I was just wondering, uh, do you have any kind of ongoing communication with your ancestors? Well, this book really helped me to forge uh, a, what feels like a direct line of communication. Uh, 2020 was the year when I realized I needed to do more, more than I had been doing in the past to feel grounded and feel um, whole of, of mind and spirit. All the, the stress and the pressure in the world and in, in um, different interpersonal dynamics that during that time. Uh, were were pretty overwhelming. And so I started meditating. And the form of meditation that I found my way to was not just like silence and clearing the mind, which is what I always thought meditation was, but it became a kind of dialogue or conversation with, with others who I perceived to be ancestors and guides. And a lot of the book bears witness to this practice. And, you know, part of it is, you know, my feelings of insecurity initially, because I was worried, maybe I'm making this up. Maybe this isn't really happening. But the kinds of insights and the forms of encouragement that came to me when I would go inward and when I would ask to be spoken to, um, guided, uh, instructed in some way, um, it, it was undeniable how useful those those offerings were. And so. Um, Absolutely. I feel like our ancestors are not gone. Their investment in the work of liberation and the the um, safety and the flourishing of their of us, their descendants, isn't over. Um, I believe that there is a form of communication that that exists across what we think of as of life and death or the mortal divide. And it's something that is meant to help us, meant to be sustaining. Um, I come away with this notion that we're working side by side with them toward the kinds of transformation that we we know is is necessary. And that feels really good. No, I, I think that I'm sure my wife would agree with you. And she she talks about her spirit guides a lot and she consults them with with some of the biggest decisions that that she faces. Um, and, and she always does. Yeah. She gets answers when she does ask them for for guidance, and so uh, I I don't doubt what you're saying at all. And uh, I I'm not as good at that practice, but uh, I do believe that it, it's a real thing, and uh, it, it sounds like it's it's some much needed help um, when when you have big decisions to make or things you're unsure about in your life or your career relationships or or anything. And you, know, you mentioned that 2020 was a tough year, and I I, I'm sure, I know you're not alone in that because we all experienced the pandemic. Uh, 2020 is when the pandemic hit and it was also uh, when George Floyd was murdered and a lot of those feelings came up. And so when we come forward, I want to ask you if you if you think the United States has made any significant and or sustainable progress since George Floyd's murder and the movement that followed. And I want to ask you uh, about that uh, right when we come forward, right here on KBLA Talk 1580. And we're back on Ariva Martin in real time. Avi Bernard stepping in for Ariva Martin tonight. 
And we are so lucky to be joined by Dr. Tracy K. Smith, author of To Free the Captives, A Plea for the American Soul. And uh, Dr. Smith, I want to ask you if you'll be able to read an excerpt from that book. Uh, but first, I wanted to, uh, to get back to what we were talking about before the break. Uh, I, I mentioned that I wanted to ask you about the year 2020, because you mentioned that as being a, uh, a particularly difficult year. And uh, we all remember 2020, even though I know that that year and maybe 2021 and and just that whole time maybe felt like a like, like a, a blur, uh, maybe an angry, uh, depressing blur for a lot of us um, with uh, the pandemic and with the murder of George Flo George Floyd. But uh, with that with that movement that followed, I know we saw a lot of. I don't want to say fake, but. I, I don't know, just just not not genuine support, maybe, you know, people were putting black squares up on their Instagram and, you know, things that that really didn't matter uh, that much. And, and it, it was nice to feel, at least to me, it was nice to feel like people were finally starting to hear us. I don't know, however, though, that it was sustained or that anything has has really changed since then. But I, I definitely want to get your thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it was definitely a moment where we began to realize that some of the uh, forms of redress that we had sort of been taught to trust uh, were not the only things that were going to to save us, if you will. Um, and one thing that makes me feel like we are evolving uh, has to do with the students that I work with. I, you know, I, I'm a professor. I work with, you know, a generation of young people who are finding um, finding their way to what they are um, passionate about and also forging new vocabularies for talking about themselves, their needs, and um, also for um, naming what questions of conscience they're willing to work toward or work for. Um, and that makes me very excited. This is a, you know, generation that's willing to say it's no longer uh, acceptable to us to endure um, the things that that our parents had just learned to sort of just suck up and deal with. So this is a generation that's really talking not only about the harm of something like, let's say, microaggressions, but also drawing their elders, their, their teachers and administrators into conversations about how to change as a community. Um, I think institutions, to the extent that they're able to change, and we know institutional change is slow, um, they're motivated and challenged by, um, by young people who um, understand that the world um, is is not living up to the promises um, or the promise that it holds. Um, that makes me feel hopeful, but I agree there's a lot, there's a lot of work ahead. Um, part of realization for me had to do with the sense that institutions um, that we've put so much faith in are just as vulnerable as we individuals are. 2020 was a time when you know, industries, arts, arts industries suffered because of the, you know, shutdowns and and quarantine. Uh, universities had to re-strategize how to how to deliver um, 
coursework to students who could no longer be on campus. Um, but I think that there are some lessons that have been learned and some steps that feel durable in a way. Um, and that gives me some hope. But it also makes me think, okay, let's let's continue to build. Let's not wait for the next crisis to um, to take those next steps. Yeah, and I do think that you have to you have to have an air of optimism as a black person. And you know, uh, James Baldwin said something along the lines of uh, to be a, a black man in America uh, and to be to have any kind of consciousness at all is to be in a rage all the time. I, I don't think I have that quote exactly right, but it's something along those lines. Um, and I, I do think that while I understand that and that that's certainly justified, I think that we do have to look at the progress and keep our mind focused on more progress. And, and the more we focus on, I do believe the more that we can continue to make progress, all, all, however slow it, it is and, <laughs> and however slow it certainly feels at times, if not all the time. Yeah. But, Baldwin talked a lot about love as well. Yeah. Well, and some of the quotes that helped me during that time when I was feeling rage or, or fear were, were his um, reminders that the work we're doing is is rooted in love. I mean, he and he says that to his young nephew, you have to remember that the people you might think of as your enemies are your younger brothers, you know, your misguided younger brothers. And part of our work is to um, offer the care by which realization might be made possible. Um, I try and think about that um, as well and think about the, the ways that we, um, what we really are doing is trying to save ourselves, by which I mean all of us. Mm. Um, the people who might believe themselves to be the most free in our, you know, national enterprise are actually equally captive in a system that has convinced us that we need to be fighting with one another, um, over something as, um, abstract as freedom and that freedom is something that must be hoarded when I think it might more productively be envisioned as something that we can make grow by sharing and passing on. Um, Before we run out of time, Dr. Smith, I want to, I want to see if we can get a, get a, a, you to read an excerpt from your book. We have about two minutes left, two and a half minutes. So uh, okay. you, can, you can read us an expert. That would just be, that would be. Sure. Wonderful. I'll read you a, a brief bit at the end of a chapter called uh, scenes from a marriage or what is the American imagination? Because I think in some ways that's my subject, this collective imaginative space that informs what we, what we want and, and how we see ourselves and others. Okay, great. I want to say this, all of this is a story about the American imagination, which envisions itself as a place where all are welcome, a chill white space peopled with minds, bodies, distinct energies. But plunge beneath the surface, which is bright with reflected light, and you'll find there are hierarchies running fathoms deep. In one, you are an obstacle to be cleared, or a means of momentary leverage, or a gauge against which the worthy might measure their privilege. I, Bob, you drift. We spend, sorry, we spend ourselves to stay just where we are, near the surface or at some dim depth, 
our legs kicking to keep us afloat, stir up all manner of matter. We can drift out far. We can rise up to sip air. We can come to believe it is a matter of buoyancy, our settling back eventually at the rung of the familiar, or sifting up ever higher above legions of others. The sea of us is everywhere. We cover the earth with our surge and our pitch. We cannot see to the bottom nor past the downward rim of far off horizon. And we are, all of us, in America, beneath America, full with America, famished for what America has promised. I, we, they, you, all are treading the same water. I do not want to pull you or be pulled by you under. Is there a shore, do you wonder, where we can rest, do you reckon? Uh, and that's why you're the 22nd Poet Laureate of the United States. Just beautiful. I, my, myself, will absolutely be buying a copy of your book for <laughs> both myself and my wife. And I just, uh, we really appreciate your time today. Uh, where can we find the book? Oh, I hope you can find it just about everywhere. And I hope that you might go to your local independent bookstore and support the the work in the community building that they do. Uh, that sounds like a plan to me. Dr. Tracy K. Smith, author of To Free the Captives, A Plea for the American Soul. Thank you so, so much for your time today. Thank you. Be well. You too. Uh